My oldest son was born in 1985. The doctors uh, told us that he would arrive on July the 2nd. He arrived on July the 23rd. I was a seminary student at the time and I worked the night shift in a warehouse unloading trucks. And of course, uh, back in those days, we didn't have cell phones. So there was, uh, there was one phone in the warehouse and it was, it was uh, I don't know, two to 300 yards on the other end of the warehouse from, from where we uh, generally worked. And so for three weeks, every time the phone rang, I, I would take off running from where I was working to try to reach the phone before it stopped ringing, which was rare. Uh, but only to arrive, you know, hoping I'd hear my wife say, David, it's time, it's time, you got to come home. But no, it's usually like, uh, is James there or, or I've got the wrong number? And so for three weeks, you can imagine every time you touch your, your cell phone, having to run to the other end of the building and back. I thought that the anticipation of having a child would exhaust me, but it was really just running, <laughs> waiting for a baby. Simeon was waiting for a baby. Simeon, the Bible tells us, was an old man who served in the temple in Jerusalem. And God had given him a promise. And that promise was that he would not die until with his own eyes he had seen the Savior sent from God. And every day, Simeon made his way to the temple. And every day, he did his chores and his jobs. And every day, he waited and waited, and every day he went home not having seen the baby. And then one day, one day he is serving in the temple and he looks and he sees a, a little peasant girl coming in to the temple complex and she's with her husband and she's carrying a little bundle in her arms. And Simeon makes his way over and he takes that baby in his arms and he looks into the face of Jesus. And he says, now my soul can depart in peace for my eyes have seen the promised one. And this child will be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations and the glory of his people, Israel. Simeon understood something profoundly important as he gazed into the eyes of of an infant who was the savior sent from God. This savior from the very beginning was a savior for the nations. And he learned that from the prophet Isaiah who in this second servant song of Isaiah chapter 49, Jesus is presented as the servant of the Lord who is the light of the nations who will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This wonderful truth has serious implications and genuine implications that we want to consider as we work through the text of Isaiah chapter 49. I realize I didn't even tell you where to turn at the beginning, so you may not be there yet, but if you are in honor of Pastor Josh, would you say amen? If you're not, hurry up. Isaiah chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. 
The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Well, as was true last week with Isaiah 42, this prophecy of Isaiah 49 is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. And this text really sets out for us what Jesus will do or what God will do through Jesus. It has been called the commission of the servant of the Lord. So we want to kind of think about what this commission is in three sequential steps. So first in verses one through three, God says that Jesus, the servant of the Lord, will reveal the glory of God. That Jesus will reveal the glory of God. You can see at the end of verse 3 that God says, I will be glorified in my servant. And really, a little, bit way, a little better way of, of expressing that is that God is saying, my glory will be displayed in him. My glory will be seen in him. So Jesus will come and he will display the perfection or the splendor or the worth of God. So when we look at Jesus, we see the glory of God. John put it this way in, in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. So how exactly does Jesus reveal the glory of God? Well, he tells us in verse one, Jesus reveals the glory of God through his name, through his name. Now for Hebrews, names were very, very important, not just to identify people, not just to distinguish one person from another, but really names were used to express the hopes and desires that parents had for their children. So a name might be used to express a reputation that they hoped their children would possess, or it, it might convey a vocation that they hoped their child would aspire to or attain, or it might reflect 
reflect a purpose that they hoped their child would accomplish. And that's exactly what happens with the naming of Jesus. We remember that the angel came and spoke to Joseph in telling him about the coming birth of Jesus. And in Matthew 121, the angel said to Joseph, you will give him a name. He said, you will name him Jesus. And you're not naming him Jesus because it's the top 10 popular names list for that particular year. You're, you're naming him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. So the name of Jesus expresses the purpose that God has for Jesus. So in Jesus the Savior, the grace and the mercy and the love of God was displayed. Paul put it this way in, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. He said that the grace of God has appeared when Jesus Christ came. And certainly that purpose is fulfilled in the cross of Christ. So that through his saving work, when Jesus goes to the cross to bear our guilt and to pay our debt, the fullness of the perfection and the majesty and the glory of God is expressed. For in the, whole, in, the, in the cross of Christ, we see the perfect holiness of God, that God refuses to turn a blind eye to sin, that God judges sin, and he judges it righteously and justly. And yet we see the perfect love and grace of God manifested in that he's judging our sin in a substitute. So we see the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God meeting together with the mercy and the grace and the love of God and manifested, displayed, revealed perfectly in Jesus the Savior. And we see in verse 2 that Jesus reveals the glory of God through his word. Jesus is the living word. And Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, that God has prepared Jesus so that he spoke God's truth. And he spoke with God's authority. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 22, the Bible tells us that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And the reaction that the audience had was very much to uh, uh, the same response that Jesus had whenever he taught. At the end of his teaching, Mark tells us that the crowd was amazed, that they were astonished, not just with the words that Jesus said, but with the way that he said them. They were astounded with the authority with which Jesus taught. So in Jesus as the teacher, we see the truth and the authority and the wisdom of God displayed. There again in, in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, we, we see Jesus revealing the glory of God through his character. He's like a polished arrow. That is, he's, he's like an arrow that has been made ready for rapid flight. He is hidden in the quiver of God, which conveys the idea of, of protection and, and nurturing. And this gives us a picture of Jesus being fit and ready for the task that he was to carry out. So that as, as Jesus walked the sea by the Sea of Galilee, as he, as he walked through the countryside of, of Galilee, he, he was revealing as he touched and healed and performed miracles, the compassion and the righteousness and the goodness and the power of God. It was all revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So everybody has their idea of what God is like. But if we want to know what God is really like, if we really want to see the fullness of God's character revealed in salvation, then we should simply go to our Bibles and learn about Jesus because Jesus reveals the glory of God.
So God sends his servant Jesus to reveal his glory. The next step is so that his salvation will go to the ends of the earth. So Jesus reveals the glory of God in salvation so that the nations are reached. So the servant will come, he will reveal the glory of God. And through the revelation of the glory of God to the nations, he will reach the nations with salvation. We see this in verses four through six. Now, notice in verse four, there's a change in tone. And the servant begins to speak. And he speaks with a, a deep sense of sorrow because it seems to him that his work is in vain. It seems that his work has come to nothing. It's empty and meaningless. He has given himself faithfully to the task, but apparently the end result is like a puff of smoke that dissipates into nothing. And yet, in spite of those apparent feelings, he gives himself to God and trusts his case to God. Now, from a human perspective, we can, we can kind of feel this, right? I mean, as, as we move through the life of Jesus, from a human perspective, we can understand these feelings. I think about John chapter 6 and you know, in John chapter 6, Jesus had fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And he's out in the countryside. And there's already a big crowd there, 5,000 men plus women and children. And yet word spread as, as Jesus had done this miracle of feeding the 5,000. And people from villages everywhere began to flock out to see Jesus. And it, they didn't have Netflix. They didn't have the internet. So what else are we going to do? There's a guy out in the wilderness doing miracles and giving away free food. Let's, let's, make a, let's make a day of it. And so they began to go out and great crowds of people came, excited because they heard Jesus was doing miracles, excited because Jesus was giving away free food. And so Jesus began to teach them. And he began to teach them about the seriousness of being a follower of Christ. He began to teach them about commitment and surrender. And John says that the crowds just began to drift away until there was no one left but the disciples. And oh, those disciples, so dull of hearing, so hard-headed, so weak in faith. We think about James and John and Peter who spent more time with Jesus than any other human beings except maybe Jesus' mother. And here's James and John, all, their, all this time with Jesus, they've heard, about, they've heard about surrender, they've heard about selflessness, they've heard about submission, they've heard about humility, they've heard the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And, and what do they do? They get their mom and they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, listen, we want some power. When you come into your kingdom, will you let us have the right hand and the left hand? Will you let us have those positions of great power? We think about Think about Peter and all of his brashness and all of his, his supposed commitment and how he, he challenged even Jesus himself when it was suggested that Jesus would die. Oh no, oh no, I'll never let anyone come near you. I'll be your protector. And yet here's Peter by a fire denying Jesus to a little peasant girl outside the high priest's home where Jesus is himself being tried. We think about Jesus 
on the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37, and lamenting in his soul, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under his wings, but you would not. Who wouldn't feel a sense of exasperation and, and disappointment with that? And yet what Jesus does when he sees that is he trusts God, he leaves his case with God, and then we discover an amazing story. That what is happening is this apparent failure on the part of Jesus, this rejection of Jesus by the Jews was actually the means by which the gospel would go to the nations. So Jesus, as he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43, he looks at them and he says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, but it will be given to a people who will produce the fruit thereof. And what we discover hundreds of years before expressed in Isaiah that this plan of God's glory being revealed through Jesus to the ends of the earth so that the nations are reached for the gospel is actually the eternal purpose of God. That all along, God had chosen to expand and enlarge the work of salvation to the ends of the earth in order to honor the Son as the Savior of the nations. We saw this back in Genesis chapter 12, did we not? When God called Abram, God said, I'm going to call you and make you my own. And I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to make you a mighty nation as, as, as prevalent as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And, and through you... The world will be blessed. God had a plan. It was not just to bless Abram and his descendants to give them material and physical wealth and comfort. It was that through them, the world would be blessed because the Messiah would come through the descendants of Abraham and he would be the savior of the nations. We hear this resonating in Psalm 67, don't we? When David prays and he begins his prayer saying, oh Lord, would you bless me and would you bless us as your people? Not so that we can hoard those blessings and and fill up our bank account, but bless us, Lord, so that we can extend the glory of God to the ends of the earth so that the nations will hear and they will shout for joy and they will join us in giving praise unto God. We have reminders sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. We have Ruth from Moab and Rahab from Jericho and the widow of Zarephath. And these are just... Sprinkled reminders telling us of God's heart for the nations. John begins his gospel account by saying, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But that's not the end of the story. That's merely the means by which God enlarges the work and the salvation of Jesus by reaching the nations. John 1.11 is simply the stepping stone to John 1.12. And as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the children of God. Jesus is the light of the world who brings salvation and redemption to all who are walking in darkness through the power of his death and resurrection. And he will secure for himself a people from every nation, every tribe, and every language. So here is Jesus, the servant of the Lord. 
He will reveal the glory of God in salvation to the ends of the earth so that he will reach the nations and create for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and language to the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Now here's the third step in the sequence. Jesus reveals the glory of God so that he can reach the nations so that he will receive the worship that he deserves. Verses six and seven. God says, it is too small of a task for such a great savior to merely bring one nation back, to merely save one people. He is the creator and Lord over all. So he will go out as the savior to all and he will save any and all who come to him in faith from any and every nation, tribe, and language. Anything less is too small for such a great savior as Jesus. But this issue is not just about numbers. The heart of this plan is really worship. The point is that Jesus is worthy of worship rising from every corner of the earth. So the call to go out and extend the glory of God to the ends of the earth is really a call to the nations saying, come and worship the glorious Jesus. Salvation is not a small, local, one group thing. It is a big ends of the earth thing. Because Jesus is worthy of the praise of nations. And it ends in that majestic picture in Revelation chapter 7. When the multitudes of blood-bought souls from every nation, tribe, group, and language gather before the heavenly throne to worship God and the Lamb. Who as the light of the nations will receive the worship that he deserves from the nations. Note the irony here in verse 7, the one who was despised, the one who is counted as worthless, brings salvation to the nations and he is exalted and worshipped even by the kings and princes of this world. Because of the faithfulness of Jesus to come as the servant of the Lord and to humble himself to the cross, revealing the glory of God to the ends of the earth and reaching the nations with redemption. God has highly exalted him to the highest place and God has given him the highest name and God has ordained that every knee from every soul in every nation will bow and that every tongue from every soul in every language will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus comes and he reveals the glory of God in salvation in order to reach the nations and he will receive the worship that is due to his name. Now this passage I think has some serious implications for us as individuals and as a church. You've heard Pastor Josh say on a number of occasions, and if you've been to the website, you see this, that our purpose as a church, Prince Avenue Baptist Church, exists. This is why we do what we do, to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. We saw that on the screen before the service ever began. 
We exist to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. And the way that we accomplish that, what we call the Prince Discipleship Pathway, is the method that we use. We equip people to live an upward life of worship, an inward life of community, and an outward life of mission. You, you know this. But what I, what I want to suggest is this passage of Jesus revealing, this idea of Jesus revealing the glory of God in salvation so that the gospel goes to the nations, so that Jesus receives the worship he deserves. That idea, that truth informs that pathway and really gives it substance, if you will. So let me just quickly run through that. Well, I, I don't know if it's quickly or not. We'll see. Let's run through that pathway in, in light of what we see in, in Isaiah chapter 49. We're called to live an upward life of worship. Well, what we see in Isaiah 49 is that God's plan through the ages is the manifestation of his glory displayed in Jesus and his saving work so that Jesus is worshiped. That's the eternal plan of God. Because Jesus is worthy, the redeemed of every nation will one day gather around the throne to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. And we have a taste of that heavenly congregation every Lord's day, not in a perfect way, not in the most full way that we will experience in heaven. But as the redeemed of God gathered in this place, we have a taste of that coming heavenly congregation every Lord's day when we gather. Because every week when we hear the word of Christ, when we learn about the worth of Christ, when we remember the death and resurrection of Christ, when we sing the praises of Christ, we are declaring the glory of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do there. If that's what we're going to do there, then we better be serious about doing that here. Our worship should always be about exalting Jesus. And we should be very grateful as a congregation that we have a pastor who zealously guards this hour for Jesus. So I want to tell you something, that's not always the norm. This is Jesus' time. An upward life of worship is a life that exalts Jesus as the focus of that life and the focus of our praise. Let's not ever miss that opportunity. And God forbid that we should ever make it about us or anything else. Jesus reveals the glory of God so that he will receive the praise of his people. We're called to live an inward life of community. Listen, God's purpose that we see in Isaiah chapter 49, God's purpose for the ages it is not a national ethnic community bound by language and borders. 
but it is a worldwide community joined together in Christ. And yes, it's true that God used Israel to bring Jesus into the world, but the work of Jesus is for all nations and transcends national affiliation. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not the passport of a certain geopolitical entity. It is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So what brings us together in community is not color, it's not nationality, it's not socioeconomic status, it's not educational level, it is Jesus and nothing else. And to experience genuine Christian community with people who may be different than us in every way conceivable, God has established Jesus as the foundation of who we are. So that means in a very real way, we should feel greater affinity and have a stronger bond with an Iranian who is a Christian than with an American who is lost. And it shouldn't be controversial for me to say that because our relationship with Jesus is deeper than anything that might naturally divide us. One of the greatest blessings that God has given me in my life is, is just the opportunity to, to travel and to do ministry and missions in a lot of different places around the world. I remember sitting in a little wood-framed church house on a muddy hillside in Romania and sitting on these hard wooden benches and watching these Romanians come in with their coats and scarves and hats bundled up against the cold and the rain, their faces marked by the horrors of living for decades under Marxism. And I saw them come quietly in and they began to fill and sit on those benches. And I thought to myself, do I really belong here? And then they began to sing. And the joy of the Lord resonated and reverberated throughout that little wood frame church house on that country hillside in Romania. And I knew, oh yeah, this is, this is right where I belong. I sat in my living room and waited for our Filipino believers, brothers and sisters to come and worship every Lord's day and as I was waiting on Sunday morning, it was Sunday night back in the U.S. And I realized every Sunday I was a long, long, long ways from my family. But those Filipino brothers and sisters would come in and they would find their seats and they began their worship service every week by singing Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And as their reverential love for Jesus filled that space, I knew this is my family. Sat in a broken down shack 
out in the countryside of Honduras by the bed of a woman whose body was broken and ravaged by disease. And just hours before her death, heard her testify of the goodness and the faithfulness of Jesus. And I knew this is my sister. You see what Jesus does? Jesus takes the glory of God to the ends of the earth and he redeems a people from every nation, tribe, and language and he brings them together and makes them one with a unity that transcends nationality and ethnicity and color and language. That community only comes when we establish Jesus, the light of the world, as the foundation of who we are as a church. We think about our outward call to missions. That should be obvious from a text like this. It was to the apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are speaking to the Jews of his day about their rejection of the gospel. And the Bible says that Paul spoke to them and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul says, the very basis of my mission work, the reason that I'm going to the nations with the gospel is because of what God said hundreds of years before in Isaiah chapter 49. That we go to the nations because Jesus is the savior of the nations. Because Jesus is the light for the nations. And we are called therefore to extend the light of Jesus to all the world. I was doing a Bible study in the Philippines. And this was just a, a, little, a little village of, of farmers and uh, to, to, get to, to get to their little village, I had to, had to walk through uh, about four or 500 yards of, of jungle and then in, into a clearing where they had built their, their little huts and then the rice terraces beyond them where they, where they did their daily work. And the first time that I, I went, I, I didn't bring a light and, and because they worked until sunset, we, we didn't start until the night was very, very dark. And so it was, it was pitch dark. And I'm walking from where I parked my car down through this little trail. And, and I, I'm, I'm filled with, with trepidation, honestly. I'm tripping over roots. And I'm worried about falling in a ditch. And more than anything else, I'm worried about snakes. Because who wouldn't be worried about snakes? And so I'm, I'm walking along and trying to feel my way trying to press back the fear. And suddenly I hear this great cacophony of voices, this loud chattering. And, and it's a, a group of children that are coming from this village and they, they've come out to meet me and they take my, both my arms and they began to walk with me. And, and I, at, at that point I was, I was still a little bit worried about tripping over roots and falling in a ditch because I really still couldn't see, but I wasn't really worried about snakes anymore because I, I didn't think any animals were going to hang out with all of this noise that we were making walking down this trail. And then 
we got almost only about a hundred yards from, from the village. And, and finally a man came walking out with a, with a lantern. You know, the light changes everything, doesn't it? The light changes everything. No more fear. No more concern about tripping over roots and falling in ditches. Just walk in the light. You know, as we as the people of God, as, as we carry out the purpose of God in our everyday life, displaying and, and declaring the gospel to the ends of the earth, that's what we're doing. We're just bringing the light of Jesus. We're just shining the light of the servant of the Lord. We're beaming out the light of the one who is the light to the nations. And when people are saved, they join us in worshiping Jesus. The reason that we pray and go and send and give is that the glory of Jesus will be extended to all the nations so that he will receive the worship that is due his name. See, the reality is this, this purpose that of God that Jesus be magnified, this eternal plan that Jesus be worshiped, it's still at work. So whether we're here or to the ends of the earth. That should be the heartbeat of who we are in everything that we do. Jesus is the priority. Our desire is to exalt Jesus and establish Jesus and extend Jesus. And that's our heart because Jesus is our life and anything less would be too small for such a great savior. And we're gonna close today. I'm gonna pray in just a moment and, and we're gonna sing. And our song is gonna be that Christ would be magnified. Now I wonder today, is, is that your heartbeat? Is Jesus the priority? That God sent him to declare the glory so that he would be worshipped. Is, is that your desire? We're going to sing. And as we sing, I pray that my, our song would be an opportunity for you to respond in praise. And that your praise would be an expression of that desire. If you need to come and pray or have someone pray with you, we certainly invite you to come. If you're here today and you're eyes spiritually, you're walking in darkness. Can I tell you, Jesus is the light. And he changes everything. And coming down to the front during this song won't save you, but there are people here who will help you to understand how you can be saved, to place your faith in Christ. And we certainly invite you to come if that's the need for your life. But as we sing, could we sing that Christ would truly be magnified? And could we mean that, that he would be the priority of each of our lives? Would you join me in standing and let's pray and we'll worship the Lord in song. Father, thank you for the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, you are the light to the nations. And you have brought light to our hearts and we give you praise. And we pray that through us, you would be worshiped, that you would be extended, that you would be honored in every aspect of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name.